This is Our American Stories, where we tell stories from all walks of life on this show, from the secular to the sacred. And this next story is one of special importance to us. It's about a gospel radio station in Atlanta that recently went off the air after 38 years. Jesse Edwards brings us the story of WYZE and Faith Memorial Church from Atlanta. All right, so I bought this old Zippo lighter on eBay a while back. It had radio station call letters WYZE 1480 on your dial stamped on the front and an image of an office building with the word Atlanta on the back. It started out as a music station back in 1956 and was now an all-gospel format that served the black community of South Atlanta. The lighter didn't work, so it sat in my drawer for a few months until I bought a repair kit and got it working again. Out of curiosity, I looked up the station only to find now that it had gone off the air sometime in between the time that I had bought the lighter and repaired the lighter. This piqued my curiosity. I began to wonder if there was a way that I could return this lighter to its original home in Atlanta. Maybe someone who worked at the station would like to have it, just for nostalgia's sake. How I started with radio, got interested in radio when I was about 17 years old. Bishop Ray Neal is a local minister with a devoted congregation and the new owner of WYZE in Atlanta, where he's been working since 1981. A local radio station ran a, a contest called DJ for a Day. And you had to write in 25 words or less why you want to be DJ for a day. I won the contest. So I went to that station, and for a day I was just fascinated with all the buttons and all the the, the things you push and all the levers you push up and the microphones, and, and, and that got me my first taste in radio. So uh, I went uh, to WYZE. I talked to the manager there. They had no openings. He said, well, you can just come and sit with someone, um, and you know maybe you can fill in from time to time. So I sat with someone for a while, and, and uh, the person really didn't want me to learn I, I would think because they just kind of hit about 10 buttons in about 10 seconds and said, you got it? And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> so <laughs> so what happened is they, they were out sick one day and uh, I was asked to come in and fill in. So I, so they started being out a lot and uh, it got to the point that the manager asked me to come in and take that shift. Uh, I guess some of the funny things about radio, one time when I first was there, I actually got the radio station off the air and didn't know how to get it back on. So the manager had to be happened to be there, happened to be there, and there was a minister that was actually on the air, and I cut him off the air and didn't know how to get him back on. So he said, "Come in here and get the boy on the air." He never got to get back on. So so I got off the air, and uh, but it ended up all my mistakes taught me radio, um, and I ended up being the trainer for WYZ. Uh, because I, I, I made so many mistakes until I could walk the person through that came in all the things not to do. So I trained at WYZ for 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 years. Everyone that came in knew I would train them. I uh, worked there uh, up until this past November. There was an equipment malfunction, and rather than repair it, the owners at the time decided it would be more cost-effective to just pull the plug on YZE than fix the problem. I was actually ending my show off at 9 o'clock that Friday night. The lights and everything went off. So I walked outside the station. Georgia Power Truck was sitting outside the station. I asked the guy, What's, when will we be back on? He said, well, I've, I've been told to turn the station off the air. The owners decided that rather than fix the problem, 
they were going to sell the property and they were going to sell the building. And um, that really, really hurt my heart because none of us, none of this jockeys had a chance to say goodbye. All the ministers that came on, and we have approximately, at any given time, 75 to 100 different ministries on a weekly rotation at the station. And none of them had a chance to say goodbye. No chance to say goodbye, and now 10 people were out of a job. Bishop Ray Neal did what he does best. I prayed about it because it really, really hurt me that we lost our job. It was around Christmas time, uh, middle of November, just before Thanksgiving when this happened. And I went and talked to the, the manager, and he gave me all the challenges of relocation and trying to hook everything back up because uh, they were going to sell the equipment and the FCC license. So I went home and prayed about it. And I thought about challenges and said, no, I'm not going to do it. And I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. And the next day, I prayed again. And I said, I'm going to do it. And I slept like a baby. And the peace of God has always been one of my compasses. And when I get the peace of God about something, regardless to how difficult it might seem or how impossible it might seem, uh, I'll, I'm going to move with that project. That's how I've gotten everything that that I that I have now. Now, Bishop Ray Neal is the pastor at Faith Memorial Church in Morrow, Georgia. With a congregation upwards of a hundred devoted believers. I was honored to be invited to a service the following Sunday morning after our Saturday interview. People were warm. The worship service was off the hook. The message was powerful. But the air was electric. This was my first time at an all-black church. Not that it matters racially, culturally, and spiritually. This was one of the most exhilarating moments of my life. I'm here in Atlanta, Georgia to help get gospel radio station WYZE back on the air. And they need your help, too. When we return, more from Bishop Ray Neal, the on-air staff at WYZE, and the congregation of Faith Memorial Church. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to the story of WYZE, Bishop Ray Neal, and the Congregation of Faith Memorial Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Gospel radio station WYZE in Atlanta, Georgia, went off the air in November of 2018, causing 10 people to lose their jobs. When the previous owners of the station decided to sell, Bishop Ray Neal, an employee since 1981 and local minister, decided to purchase the rights to the WYZE name, its FCC license, and the station equipment using his personal life savings. I'm believing God that he's going to give the resources uh, for us to come back on the air strong, stronger than we were, uh, with new concepts, new ideas. We still got to maintain the base, but we want to grow the station. We want to reach more out in the community. We want to be more of a voice of gospel in Atlanta. And we're doing this together. It's, it's a project that we're doing together. And we invite uh, the Atlanta community and we invite the world. We invite anyone that, that loves gospel music and that, that wants to help us, to help us to do this project. One of the scriptures God gave me, and God always used to give me a scripture when I'm about to do something. When Israel was going to the Red Sea, Moses was told to use what he had in his hand, stretch out the rod, and the Red Sea divided. When they came to the Jordan in the book of Joshua, the Lord told Joshua to tell the priests to put their feet in the water. And when they put their feet in the water, then they saw the miracle. So God told me that this time, you got to put your feet in the water. You got to put your feet in the water by faith. And when you put your feet in, I'm going to send help. I'm going to send someone to help you and to give you the miracle that I, I, I sent you on. But but before you see the miracle, you got to have the faith to put your feet in the water. So that's the faith I'm standing on. Uh, God has never failed me in anything that I've done. It, it's not for me. It's for the glory of the kingdom. It, it's for all the ministries, all the ministers. It's for the staff that lost their job. It's for the community that has lost the voice of connection for gospel. And it is to, to, let, to let people know that there is a resurrection. Uh, all of us have, have been um, something before we are what we are now. And, and it, but for the grace of God, resurrecting us and giving us resurrections in our life when we didn't deserve to be resurrected when we when we did things that really were bad and or not good god gave us another chance another chance a second chance a third chance a fourth chance and i just believe, believe this is this is another chance for uh god to do something great for god to show uh his power for god to show that uh you don't have to accept darkness the darkness of the station the station can shine again for the kingdom and I'm excited about it. And I, I want to thank you so much for coming uh, to just share the story because uh, I, I prayed. And, and as I say, even though you pray, your mind will still work on you and say, well, who's going to help you? Who knows you? Uh, nobody's going to help you. Uh, but when I got your message in Messenger and you said, uh, I want to come. I want to talk to you about your story. I just went and prayed, and I thank God that that He's proving what He said. He, he's given me a voice. He's He's got people like you and and like American Story that that want to take the time to 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 come to Atlanta uh, and use your resources to help us get the word out. 
And I want to say thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank you so much for those that are listening. And, 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 and the same way that, that I have the faith in God to do what might seem impossible, don't allow anything to keep you from reaching for the stars. Because when you reach for the stars, you're going to end up somewhere better than you were. And, and my prayer is that WYZ will be back on the air that will relocate and will reconnect with the community and all those people that are getting static now are going to get our voice saying AM 1480 WYZE Atlanta's Gospel Voice connecting you to the world and to the globe and to the community we are just so excited about it this is more than just a gospel radio station for the black Christian population of Atlanta it's a valuable community resource a beacon of hope and a way of life Not just for the listeners, but for the staff as well. Like Minister Carl Eli Smith, born and raised in Atlanta, he was with WYZE for 26 years. As a matter of fact, I did my last show there Sunday morning, November the 18th, because that was the same Sunday we went dark. It hurt me as a radio personality because, um, like Bishop Neal probably mentioned, we didn't get a chance to say goodbye. You know, we just, it was just over. It was like a death. It was like a sudden death. And Reverend Shay Dillard Fulton. I was sad because it was like, that's all I know. I, all I know is WYZE. I've never been to any other radio station. It was like a void, a sad void. Another on-air personality who lost his job when YZE went off the air was John Hoey, a young and up-and-coming gospel DJ in Atlanta. You know, when we first heard about it, it was it was in the sense of us feeling well, definitely me feeling as though like, wow, where did that come from? I think I had my son with me. You know, he he would always go down to the studios with me um, on Sundays for my show. And I say I was like, hey, man, we got to go. He's like, why? I said, because uh, we are closing the station now. And he was like, oh, no. I was like, yeah, so don't worry about it. Cynthia Waters is the public service director, producer and host at WYZE, where she's been working for the last 28 years. I was raised right here in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, we on the south side of the city is where I was born and raised. I lived with my mother and my grandmother growing up and my great-grandmother, and they were very influential into making me the person that I am today. I graduated from Booker T. Washington High School, and I went to Atlanta Area Tech for a while, and I also went to Chattahoochee Tech. And um, I had, um, in in growing up, I had a, those three women. They instilled in me the importance of, um, you know, finding a job and sticking with the job. And, you know, just good work principles, showing up on time. How I got into radio was, it was just sheer coincidence. I had a classmate that worked for WYZE. He, he worked at night. And um, we called him when we were getting ready to celebrate our 20th class reunion in 1988 about helping us to promote it. And so we were in a, a, you know, we were sitting together and uh, thinking of, you know, just kind of brainstorming. So somebody said, well, let's call Greg Fan. He's one of our classmates and surely he'll put us on the air and let us talk about the reunion. So they called him up and surely he did. But... 
they chose me to be the spokesperson. And I'm sitting there like, uh-uh, I, I've never talked on the radio. I, I don't have any ambition to talk on the radio. I don't want to. So anyway, <laughs> that we after going back and forth, I ended up making the announcement. So after we finished that, he he called me and he said, you know what? You could be in radio. I'll train you and everything. I was like, uh-uh, I don't want to be on radio. I don't think I sound that good. So three years went by and we were having a true meaning of love seminar at our church. And I called him and I asked him if I could be on his public service broadcast, which at that time was called What's Happening Around Atlanta. And he said, yeah. So me and my vice president, we went on his show and we talked about our True Men Love Seminar. He says, you know what? Three years have gone by and I I asked you about being radio. I told you I'd train you and everything. So I was about to turn 40, and I hadn't done a whole lot that I wanted to do. So I decided that I was going to take him up on the offer. So I went over at night after working all day, and I had my kids were teenagers. And my husband, he he allowed me to uh, to do this by helping me out at home, you know, cooking dinner and all. And um, so I went over at night. And he was on, at that time, we were on till midnight. His his shift was from 9 to 12. So I I I don't think I could do it today, but I, I did, after work, I'd go home and eat. And then at 9 o'clock, I'd go over to the radio station and train. So after about three months, uh, three or four months, then that's when I got hired. When we return, the story of WYZE in Atlanta, the gospel radio station that went off the air. More with Bishop Ray Neal, the staff of WYZE, and the Congregation of Faith Memorial Church in Morrow, Georgia, right here on Our American Stories. Turn to the story of this gospel radio station that went off the air in Atlanta, Georgia. We're in Atlanta, Georgia, talking with the former staff of WYZE, the all-gospel radio station that's trying to get back on the air thanks to longtime employee, current owner, and local minister, Bishop Ray Neal, who put his life savings on the line to save the station's name, its FCC license, and the station equipment. They're trying to raise enough money to get a new building and to hire the engineering required to make it work. We're talking with Cynthia Waters, public service director, producer, and host at WYZE, where she's been for the last 28 years. When I first started the job, I was doing it part-time because I was working in corporate America. But then in 1996, they came to me and said, well, uh, we need you 
if you can, you know, to be our new salesperson. And so that gave me another hat along with the um, along with the one I was wearing for public service. And so we added that layer on, and that's when I became full-time at YGE. It couldn't have been better because I had no set hours. At, my job dictated that because I mostly worked by appointment, so I was in control of my destiny. And um, I, I've been working for WYZE for 28 years. I had never worked in radio before. I have never worked at another radio station afterwards, and so I'm looking forward now to the future. When the radio station was taken off the air without notice on a Sunday night in November of 2018, it hit people like Cynthia and the rest of the staff in very much the same way. It was very hard. I I tell you, it felt like I had lost a family member. We had just finished eating Sunday dinner when I got the call. And, I mean, I could hardly contain myself. I I was I was crying as if you had told me somebody in the family died because I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and, and it, you know, uh, the first thing that ran through my mind, what do I do now? Um, I, I had a very hard time. My husband, he he heard he heard it on, on the speaker. And as soon as I was told that, you know, we had been shut down, I immediately started sobbing. I dropped the phone. I was distraught. And I think I cried for about three weeks before I actually stopped. I was, by the time I stopped, my blood pressure was up, and uh, I, was, I was nervous, and, uh, uh, and I thought that I needed to go to counseling, but I eventually got it together. I prayed, and I had a lot of people to talk to, and that does work friends, my co-workers, my pastor, uh, my husband, kids, everybody was trying to console me. And it did work, The talking to people and, and just helping me get through. But it was a very traumatic experience. WYZE, to me, it was everything. It was not just a job. It was my co-workers. All of, all of us that were there, is we fit. We we were like a puzzle, and we fit together. We have been, all of us have been together for over 20 years. Um, I've been there 28, and, and uh, Bishop Neal, 38, and, and a lot of um, our office manager, Ellen, she had been there like 30 years. So we all just, um, it was like a family atmosphere, and I miss my family. It's good to be retired and do what you want to do, but I like going to YZE. It wasn't a job. It was more or less like a, um, a a sitting service, so to speak. You know, you go there, you see your friends, not just your coworkers, you see your friends. And see, I had become friends with all of my customers, and they'd call me up no matter what was happening, whatever kind of problem they were having, they would call and want to talk, and I'd talk to them. So to me, YZE was family. It wasn't a job. Another on-air talent and longtime employee of WYZE Atlanta is announcer Bob Grissom. Getting the radio station back on the air means just as much to him as it does to the community. Getting it back on the air means that the, I mean, there are a lot of, elderly black people who just love the YZE and they love the personalities but for me it means being able to inspire, motivate and create little poetic sayings that inspires people 
It means a lot, you know, it means a lot because for me, I don't need it, but the community needs it. Uh, our community is dying for a lack of sense of direction. Uh, and I talk about our community. I'm talking about the black community. That's who we serve. We need to believe in ourselves. Mr. Bob Grissom is an intellectual with a spiritual calling for the truth. I asked him about the best advice he had ever received and his favorite Bible verse as we talked at Faith Memorial Church in Atlanta. The best advice a minister gave me once. He's dead now. He said, Brother Bob, you may think you're smart, but let me tell you something, son. There are people out there in the academic arena will eat you alive. What you do is you study the word of God and let that be your foundation. That was the best advice I have ever gotten. My favorite Bible verse is Matthew 6.33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added. That's knowledge. God is our knowledge. God is our light. Knowledge is what lighten up your mind. It makes you see the manifestation of man, not as a body, but as a spirit in a body. What gives us the duality of spirits You're white, I'm black, he's green, because we're dealing with what we put our hands on. When we go inward, and you don't have to come to this church to find God, because your temple is the temple of God. If it's your temple and God lives in you, then you and God are what? One. Problem is, we have no consciousness that it is God when we say, mm, something told me not to do that, or I had an uh, intuition. That's the Spirit of God trying to get your attention because you're headed in a direction that will destroy you eventually. And we have to try to look at everything in a positive way. I know it's hard to do it because we live in a society where Circumstances and conditions are constantly changing. But if we have an enlightened mind, we make adjustments based on our ability to understand that change is good as long as it's positive change. Most people don't see that. This is mine, leave it alone, and that's the way it is. Do I criticize a person for feeling that way? No. You just wait in time. They'll come around to seeing it. If they are supposed to, everyone we come in contact with will never develop a positive mind. Some will, some won't. The Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. Those who are chosen are those who decide to say yes let me find the wisdom that I see in this book and live it out. Most find it, 
but they never attempt to live it out. We're in Atlanta, Georgia, hearing from the staff of gospel radio station WYZE, the station that went off the air without notice in November of 2018. When we return, more from Bishop Ray Neal, the local pastor that's trying to save the station, his sermon from Faith Memorial Church, and more from the staff of one of the greatest gospel radio stations in the country. This is Our American Stories. Turn to the story of WYZE, Bishop Ray Neal, and the Congregation of Faith Memorial Church in Atlanta, Georgia. So I first found out about WYZE when I bought a vintage lighter bearing the radio station's call letters. So I wanted to return the lighter to the station only to find out that they had gone off the air and were desperately trying to get back on in Atlanta. Bishop Ray Neal has been working at YZE since 1981 and recently bought all the rights, licensing, and equipment with his life savings. They've set up a GoFundMe and various other ways to donate at WYZERadio.com. Now, Bishop Ray Neal was kind enough to invite my family and I to the Sunday morning service at his Faith Memorial Church outside of Atlanta, where the topic of this lighter made it into part of the sermon. I got a message from this young man, a messenger. And he said, my name is Jesse Edwards. I read about your story. And I am a part of a nationally syndicated radio show. And I've been compelled, he used the word compelled. I've been compelled to come and tell your story to help you. Can we praise God for that? I said, can we praise God for that? I said, can we praise God for that? We got the family Amen, amen. I say that is because many times God tells us to do things that we we ignore it. He could just say, well, yeah, yeah. He's in Georgia. I ain't going now. <laughs> but God let it be on his heart. And, and, and let me tell you how God connects things. I asked him, how do you find out about me and about the station? And he pulled out this lighter. It says, WYZ 1480 on your dial. Now this was made before I even came to the station. He collects radio memorabilia, and on eBay he saw this lighter nine months ago, before the station went off there. Wait, wait, you see, you, 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 you missed the point. To, uh, before we went off the air, God let him buy this light. And, and he looked on the internet and, and checked his eye when he bought the light. And then, and then he, kept, he checked again. After he had the light, he didn't really have a reason to check again. Except for God told him to check. 
And when he checked again, he said, well, they're out there. And this lighter, God used this lighter. I just want to see how God uses things. And put things in motion. You put it in motion before we even went off the air. When you bought this lighter, it began the process. Amen. And, and when it came with this, this lighter, it, it, I wouldn't say it was it was a sign from God, it, but it was God telling me, you're doing the right thing. I had spent some more time with Bishop Ray Neal in his church office the night before, talking about everything from the radio station, his church, and gospel music itself. Gospel music has evolved uh, throughout the years. When, when I first went to radio, uh, gospel music was basically traditional. Uh, traditional, you had uh, Shirley Caesar, you had the late Reverend James Cleveland, and there were two or three major I guess what you call major gospel artists. Uh, of course, Mahalia Jackson and Claire Ward and those uh, more traditional artists. Uh, what I see has happened in gospel music, it has really blossomed over the years. It used to be the gospel music was something that you really could not make a career out of. Uh, you, would, you did it basically because uh, of ministry. Uh, but now it's blossomed to the point that a person actually can make a career out of gospel music uh, and they can live uh, off of the music. Um, there's so many branches of gospel music now. You've got tradition, you've got contemporary, you've got urban, uh, you've got Christian music, you've got, you've got all kinds of music that really are, are singing about the same Christ, about the same, about the same God. Uh, but the way I look at gospel music is that gospel music is uh, just another way of telling the story of Jesus. I guess my favorite artist would be Richard Smallwood because he he kind of is, is sort of in between. Uh, he has that worship sound and he also has the gospel sound. I love Total Praise. That's my favorite song, Total Praise. A lot of his songs I can connect to uh, because they, I guess, are parts of my life. Um, and my life is kind of a total praise uh, because God has been so good to me. Uh, God has, has done so much for me, and, and I'm so thankful for all the doors he's opened for me. For, for me, my father's from a small town uh, in South Georgia. My mom's from Atlanta. And for their son to to be pastoring a church and to have another church in in, in Griffin uh, to help other ministers, uh, for the son to be on the radio every day up until last November, uh, talking to an international audience, a person that is was basically shy. Uh, and I, I didn't really say that at first, but I was a basically very shy. I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of quiet now. I, I'm, I'm in a room, but I'm, I'm very quiet now. But God took that shyness and, and that um, quiet person and put them on the air talking to the world every day. And and one of the things that some, God's kind of funny sometimes, God will sometimes take our crutch. Uh, because I think of myself when I couldn't talk clearly in elementary school. I had to take speech. 
I think of myself when my parents were told, don't put me in elementary school till the next year. And God has taken my crutch, which was speaking, and made that my ministry. And every time I speak, it's not me. It's me depending on God. That's why before I preach, I pray. Before I do anything, I pray. Because I realize that it's not my strength. It is the strength of God speaking through me. So it's funny how God will sometimes use your crutch and let that become your ministry. And, and I think he does that because he wants us to know it's not you. And he keeps you praying. Because, you know, every time I speak, I know it's not me. Every time I speak, I know, hey, I'm that I'm that kid that had to take speech. Hey, I'm that kid that could that they had to. My parents were told not to put me in elementary school. So it it, it it lets me know, hey, this is God. This this is, and never get cocky. Never get uh, into yourself to the point that you think it's you. It's always God. And when you give Him glory, uh, He He blesses you. As our time with Bishop Ray Neal comes to an end here at Faith Memorial Church in Atlanta. I asked him what his favorite Bible verse was. St. Mark eleven twenty two. Have faith in God. Verily, verily, I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you what things shall we desire when you pray. Believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. And uh, we know that bringing the station back on might be a mountain, but we can speak to the mountain in Jesus' name, and God's going to send help, and we'll be back on there soon. Now, if you'd like to help him and the people of Atlanta get WYZE back on the air, visit their website at wyzeradio.com for links to more information. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that piece, Jesse. And what a story. And my goodness, let's go speak to that mountain. And let's help Bishop Ray Neal and the WYZE family. And again, that's wyzeradio.com. And look for their GoFundMe page. And if you're listening anywhere around the country, this is what we can do sometimes. Just help people in need and good people in need. By the way, so many of the words that Bishop Neal spoke to all of us here at the show you got to put your feet in the water. you got to put your faith in the water. God has been good to me, he said. Well, he just put everything on the line, his personal savings and his time and his effort. But it's a love project, folks. And if you have a love of gospel music, or even if you don't, my goodness, it's serving a deep need in the community. And by the way, there were a few other things he said that just really struck me. And you talked about all the different ways that gospel music is approached, all the different types of gospel music. But he said it was just another way of telling the story of Jesus. And God will sometimes take our crutch, he said. And he was not a natural speaker, the bishop. And he'll use it. It is not me speaking, he said, but God speaking through me. And by the way, we all have that feeling about intuition, about things that are happening in our life, that there's some other force Some of us are Christians, some Jews, some Muslims, some just believe in a spirit or a God or a higher power. Whatever it is you believe, wyzeradio.com, their GoFundMe page. This is Lee Habib, the story of WYZE, our story too, as we, our audience, you, the listeners, help them 
get back up on the air. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. The Cremation of Sam McGee is one of the most famous poems by Robert W. Service. It was published in 1907 in Songs of a Sourdough. A sourdough, in this sense, is a resident of the Yukon. It's about the cremation of a prospector who freezes to death, told by the man who cremates him. Here now is the cremation of Sam McGee, told by the great Johnny Cash. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell, though he'd often say in his homely way, I'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail, and you talk of your cold, but through the parka's fold it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close, then the lashes froze Till sometimes we couldn't see It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee And that very night as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow And the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe He turned to me and Cap says he I'll cash in this trip, I guess and if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of a moan, It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold till I'm chill clean through to the bone. Yet it ain't being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, You'll cremate my last remains. Well, a pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the break of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. And he crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. With a corpse half hid that I couldn't get rid, I hurried horror-driven. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and because of a promise given, 
It was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promise true, and it's up to you to cremate my last remains. Now, a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were numb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh, God, how I loathed that thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow, and on I went, though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low. And the trail was bad, and I felt half mad, but I swore I'd not give in. And I'd often sing to that hateful thing, and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lakely Barge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a thrice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying round, and I heaped the fuel higher. Well, the flames just soared, and the furnace roared, such a blaze you never did see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about before I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peek inside. I guess he's cooked and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. And since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, this is the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. And what a piece of storytelling. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories. We get out of the way, we find some really great material, and we share it with you. And by the way, as Johnny Cash was telling that story, I couldn't get the thought of the Lonesome Dove out of my head and that great burial scene where, of course, Woodrow has to bury Gus. He has to take him all the way back all the way back across the country by wagon because he made a promise to his buddy. By the way, if you remember the line, he says, I guess this will teach me to be more careful about what I promise in the future. But a promise then was a promise, and hopefully you know people in your life now today where a promise is a promise. The cremation of Sam McGee, what storytelling, and that's the great Johnny Cash. If you've got an old story like this from American literature, from the American canon Send us your suggestions. We'll put them up on the air 
and send them right back at you. American literature at its finest, American performance art at its finest, and American storytelling at its finest here on Our American Stories. with our American stories and that was a dog sneezing if you can believe it one more time Jesse and that was BarkPost.com selection from the number one viral dog video of 2015 and we played this delicious sneeze and I'm sure all of you have a different sneezing dog sound in your life and I have a I have a very loud pug when it comes to snoring and I am going to record that just for this guest, the next time she joins us. And it's Jory Larson now joins us. And she is, well, she's the key person behind BarkPost.com. Thanks for joining us, Jory. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, many people believe dogs are people. I do. I mean, they are members of my family. I want to play another short clip for you, this time of dog owners treating their now famous dog, Mishka, with over 100 million YouTube views like a human. Mishka, I, I love you. you. I, love you. I, I love you. I love you. I love you. Good girl. I love you. <laughs> Jory, in your case, you gave your dog an actual IQ test. And it That's didn't go right. and it didn't did. go well. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So um Bark Post, one of my editors came to me and said, you know, we, we have this idea for um, an at-home intelligence test that you can administer to your dog and then just write about the results and see what happens. So um, I followed along. There's an internet doggy IQ test that you can follow along at home. Um, and I, I took an afternoon and I had my husband photograph it so we could have some pictures for the post. And I kind of went through, um, I think it's about four to five steps can do it in less than an hour. Um, and I was really curious to see what Winnie's IQ would be. Like any dog owner, um, you know, you think your dog is the smartest dog in the world at times. And, of course, they also have their derpy moments is how we like to refer to it when yeah. they're uh, behaving like less than an Einstein. But um, the test actually was really interesting to see how Winnie reacted. I, I really couldn't have predicted how she was going to perform. And your your Winnie, your dear Winnie, is a two year old Australian Shepherd, right? That's right. Yeah, it, it's a breed that's pretty, pretty known for their intelligence. Um, right up there with Border Collies. At least that's what Australian Shepherd owners always kind of. Uh, maybe it's a myth that we're circulating around that they're as smart as Border Collies. Um, but yeah, so she she rings a bell when she tells us she has to go to the bathroom outside, which I always thought 
was kind of uh, a sign, you know, a signifier of intelligence. Um, so I was really curious to see how she would perform. Well, I can tell you this: I have uh, pugs, and I don't even need to give them an IQ test, Joey. Because these dogs, they're just not right. They're not particularly smart, and they cannot be taught. I have given up trying to train them. I've owned them my whole life, and anyone who owns pugs knows what I'm talking about. Talk about your, your... You said at one point, you said about your dog, I swear she understands long strings of English, and she rings a bell to tell us when she has to go potty. That's pretty damn smart, Jory. Yeah, yeah, so... We actually, um, I think we got this idea from a book that we read when she was a puppy. We hung um, a bell next to the door, and we started when, we got her when she was 10 weeks old, so we started right away. Every time we took her out to go to the bathroom, we would ring the bell. So she would start to associate that feeling of having to go to the bathroom with ringing the bell. And she got it within two weeks, so she was she was less than three months old, she would nudge the bells with her nose, and then we would know to let her out. Right. So we thought that was pretty cool and pretty smart. Yeah, it is pretty cool, and it's, it's darn smart. And again, I, I'm getting jealous listening to you describe the intelligence of your dog, because ours are, are so silly. <laughs> they, they don't even know where to poop. I mean, they, they get confused about, like, pooping. So tell us about the test <laughs> you did with, well, that involved a blanket and your dog's head. Talk about that test. Yes. So so the first step in the intelligence test is to toss a blanket over your dog's head in, in one swift motion. And then you're going to start your stopwatch, and you're going to time how long it takes for them to kind of shake off this towel off their head. Right. So when we first threw it on, she she did nothing. She froze. And so I started to think, uh-oh, this, this might be a red flag. Um, and I, I think what it was is she might have been a little frightened by, you know, what, what are mom and dad doing to me right now? Um, so she did wiggle off and she shimmied it off in 19 seconds. So that earned her three points on, on the scale. And if it took them, you know, 31 seconds to two minutes, okay, you only get two points. Um, if you try, but you don't get the blanket off at all in two minutes, the dog only gets a point. And if the dog doesn't attempt to do anything, just lets the blanket kind of sit there until you come to their rescue, right. they get zero points. They get zero. Again, my pugs, yeah. I know they're a zero. Jory, I don't, I don't have to run them through this test. Talk about, <laughs> talk about some other things that you're, 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 you're testing in, in, this, in this space. What are some of the other things you look at in terms of dog sure. intelligence? So we also, there's another um, test where you're kind of seeing if they can understand almost object permanence. So you place a high-value treat, so whether it's, salami or string cheese or whatever your dog, you know, really wants to get at, you cut up a little piece and you put it underneath um, like a dish towel, a regular towel, a blanket, and you make sure that they see that it goes under there. Right. And then the whole point is to see, start the stopwatch again, how long it takes your dog to actually get the towel off the treat. Um, and this is where our Winnie had her first setback. She couldn't do it. She could not get the towel off the treat. And at one point, she was actually kind of trying to suck the string cheese through the towel. It's like <laughs> right. she, she gave up totally. She kind of resigned herself to the fact that she wasn't going to actually get to chew the string cheese, but maybe she could slurp up some flavor. So that was a, that was a minor setback. Yeah, I'm not sure how my, my producers would do on that one, though, either. I mean, I don't think they do well either. They just try to eat through the towel. Any other any other tests, Jory? Uh, t- talk about some other parts of this intelligence test. Uh, this is fascinating. Yeah, sure. So um, the third the third step in this test 
you, um, it's, it's involves a treat again. So you're going to cut up another piece of your high value treat and you make a little wooden plank, you know, maybe a foot off the ground, um, supported. We did books on either end and we place the treat underneath the wooden plank far enough away that your dog can't quite reach it with her, her muzzle alone. She has to use a paw. That's, this is sort of testing, you know, do they have the wherewithal to, to use other tools to get to the treat besides their, their snout? And so you cover it with a towel and you start the stopwatch again and uh, you time it to see how long it takes them to actually paw the towel out, you know, get off the towel and get to the treat. Um, and so with Winnie again, she, she pawed at the towel. She was able to pull it from underneath the plank. She understood that she had to use her paws, but she could not, she, she never understood the concept of actually getting the towel off of the treat. So she started to chew. This time we used a milk bone. She started to chew the milk bone through the towel and actually she put a hole in my brand new towel, which I should never have used for this time. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Maybe you get a bad score on the owner test there, Jory. Right. And I will say, I think, you know, with any dog that you're testing, I think Winnie was a little thrown by all all of these tricks and I think she was kind of suspicious. So if you do this test at home, you have to take it with a grain of salt because your dog might just be kind of thinking, what's up with mom and dad? I'm not going to perform. Right. The heck with them. What are, the, what are they doing to me? And this is uh, this is their goofy way of entertaining themselves. I'm not on for this. You know what I love, Joey? Send us some material periodically. We are fascinated with dogs and human beings. And I think as people are getting lonelier, too, as people are having smaller families, uh, the pet, I think, is playing a more central part of human beings' lives. And I don't know if you, you agree with that. Maybe just a quick second on that. Do you, do you think that's what's happening in part, Joey? Absolutely. I, I really do. I, I feel like dogs and, and cats probably too, but dogs are our specialty at Bark Post. Um, I, I feel like more and more people are treating them like members of the family. Um, you know, you see whether it's a high-end doggy daycare or, you know, you, you don't have a dog there anymore. You take them to a nice boarding place, a nice kennel. It's, I feel like everything um, is kind of going a little bit more of the luxury route when it comes to pet ownership. Um, yeah, and it does feel like maybe, maybe there is something that there that the families are getting a little bit smaller, people are living further away from their family members, so it's nice when you come home after a long day, you open the door, and, you know, your dog is always going to be so happy to see you, and, and it makes you feel like home where, well, whenever you're with your dog. I think so. that's what's going on, too, and I know that my wife is now spending more on meals for my dogs with their fancy food than me, and so... I, and, I, and I don't care. I, I've, I've, I'm done fighting it, Jory. The dog now is more important than me, and I'm fine with it. Jo, Jory Larson, thanks for joining us. Keep sending us stuff. We'd love to hear more from you, from Bark Post, and from the animals. Thanks so much for joining sounds, us. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Jesse's just having so much fun playing with the dials. And playing the dog sounds. And we love animals here on Our American Stories. And we love sports. We love love. And we love music. And when we come back, more after these messages. And you call me out. I can't hide anymore. I have no You can't see through
And we continue with our American stories. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of one of our regular contributors, Bob McClellan. Someone you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're sure to be captivated by. Today, Bob shares with us his letter to his mentor, Bill Walker. Dear Bill, I can already see that telling a story about you is going to be very difficult. Not because I'm short on material, but my emotions keep pulling me away from our teacher and student relationship to something much deeper and more complex, something much harder to express. I'm reticent to talk about your thoughts or feelings and very reluctant to try and explain them to someone else, let alone pretend to understand what's in your heart. I know my own runs in all directions when I think about you, as no one has impacted my life as much as you have. There are probably many people out there who will enjoy the academic aspects of our relationship and the enlightenment you brought me, but it's just at the surface. When we met, I was imprisoned and lonely. I was an unhappy corporal. At 21 years of age, I had no idea of where to go in my life or that it was even capable of going anywhere. It was just all too chaotic. This is the poem I wrote at 21 years of age and at the outset of my college career asking for help. The answer and the messenger, however, that arrived was not what I expected. The poem is called The Maze. How appropriate. I sit amid a maze, walled in by my desires. Sitting here with me is this love I have. Someday, if I ever get out, I'd like to show it to you. I don't know how I got here, for it's certainly no place to be. Though you're just on the other side of the walls, you are still many miles from me. So if you love me a little and are tired of waiting about, you might find your way in and help me to get out. And then you appeared, disguised as an English professor. We are 50 years down the road in our friendship, Bill. We still speak almost every day. Even today as I write my stories, I look to you for advice and comments. I may never be able to explain the why or the how of our friendship, and if I did, I doubt that other than you, there was no one I could explain it to. I wasn't looking for a father. I had already left one behind, and I hardly fit the role of a loving son, which leaves me without an answer or explanation. Maybe our friendship is just best shared between you and me. I was sitting in the back of the class one day in May of 1970 when Mr. Walker walked in and advanced to the podium. In his arms were some books and notepads and copies of a syllabus for the English 1A course that he would teach. He wore a French beret, plaid shirt, tweed jacket, blue jeans, and cowboy boots. Well, not quite the dress I expected from a college professor, but since I hadn't been to college before, I guess I had no idea of how professors dressed. He was 20 years older than I, came from a wealthy Connecticut family, and had an incredible education and experience and immersion in the world of literature and books. As they called the name of the students, he paused when he reached mine, purposely mispronounced it, and moved on down the page before I could respond. I thought to myself sitting there, gee, he must really be pissed off about the comment I made to him after his speech class last semester. On the day I was assigned to deliver my speech in his class, he decided to let the students rap about the war in Vietnam. 
For the next two weeks, I sat there ready to go, but everybody wanted to discuss their feelings about the war. Being just released from active duty in the Marines, I didn't want to talk about the war. I didn't care about Vietnam anymore. I was done. I was out. I was a civilian. I wanted an education. I answered up when he called on me in that class. You should all run down the list if you're all so interested in the war. Finally, I just ran out of patience and I cornered him in the doorway to tell him what I thought of him and his class. Leaning down under that French beret and putting my face right up to that full beard of his, I said, you know, Mr. Walker, I don't like this class of yours. It doesn't have any structure to it. Now, sitting here waiting for this class to begin, I thought to myself, this is going to be a tough semester. A few weeks later, Nixon invaded Cambodia and four students were shot dead on the Kent State campus. Colleges erupted all over the country and some closed with riots breaking out. After two nights of outrunning tactical police, throwing rocks against their great shields of armor, and hearing the metallic clunk, hiss, and hiss of gas canisters enveloping me in a caustic fog, I went home for the night. I returned to my apartment at midnight. As I climbed into bed, I saw my English textbook. I had not opened it in three weeks. Opening it up to the assigned story was the title, The Celestial Omnibus by E.M. Forrester. By 3.30 a.m., I had read it three times, and the next morning, I was seated in the first row when Mr. Walker walked in. He was surprised to see me sitting in someone else's seat, but he said nothing about it. Neither did its prior occupant. Throughout his lecture, my arms ceaselessly kept being raised until the hour ended. I was on him immediately, asking questions and trying to understand more about this strange story that had such a great effect on me. He tried to ignore me, and when we reached his office, he took a number of large books off the shelf and abruptly told me, If you like that story, then you should read these. I'm very busy right now, and he abruptly closed the door. Summer came early that year because all the campuses were closed due to demonstrations. Working nights as a bartender gave me ample time to read each and every volume he pushed into my arms. When I completed them, I searched for his address and I walked to Woodland Avenue in Palo Alto to return them to him. His house was more like a bungalow or cottage. The front of it had a brick path with flowers running along the edges. The cottage was shaded by leafy trees and bushes in front of the windows and closing it from sight to make it more private. When he answered the door, he was surprised to see me. I offered the books and said I read them and wanted to return them, but the school was closed. Then I extended my arms towards him and put the books between his hands. It was an awkward moment, and then he invited me into his house. Crossing over that threshold, I stepped into his living room and was astonished by what I saw. All the walls were covered in bookshelves, paintings, and inscriptions of all kinds. I could see a trail of shelves meandering down the hall into his bedroom in the back. They were everywhere, from floor to ceiling. The only sound was a record playing some classical music. A couple open books sat on the arm of his couch. On the wall, there was a sign that had an inscription that read, quote, Let us consider the way in which we spend our lives. End of quote. I asked him who said that. He told me it was from Thoreau. 
Well, I didn't know who he was, but I thought I just should try that advice sometime. I went over and I read the names and titles of the many books that covered the walls. I had to ask him, did you really read all of these? I felt as if I was standing inside his mind, that to understand who he is, one would have to read all these books. And when we come back, we'll continue with the McClellan Files. And by the way, if you have a friend or a neighbor who's a great storyteller, send them our way. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. I bumped into Bob on a visit into the San Francisco area. A friend of mine had told me to sit down with him. And about four hours later, I was just mesmerized in his life experience and his writing talent. And he does something completely different for a living, uh, having to do with financial services. But my goodness, what a storyteller and what a writer. And by the way, if you have stories about important mental relationships, a teacher, that encourager in your life, who changed your life, again, send those stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We love hearing from ordinary Americans. We're terrific writers as as a country, and we have terrific stories to tell. When we come back, we continue with Bob McClellan and his talk and his letter to Bill Walker. More after these messages. with Our American Stories and Bob McClellan's tribute to his English teacher and mentor, Bill Walker. When he left off, Bob had just crossed into uncharted territory, his teacher's home. We talked a little, and he remarked that since I had such an attraction to literature, he would loan me some more books. I read them, returned them, and received more when I did. In the afternoons, I would come over to his house and he would discuss with me the substance within those books. It was like my own classroom. During long evenings over drinks, he shared his thoughts and encounters with the many writers he had met and how each writer enlarged his view of the world and his appreciation of it. From drinking with Faulkner to dinner with Nabokov, parties with Tennessee Williams and Truman Capote was the world that he visited. These visits with him at his house continued daily through the summer as he fed my imagination about the world of literature and art. When he asked me about what my plans were, I skipped over the enormous hole in my education and background and told him I wanted to be a lawyer and go either to Harvard or Berkeley. I'm sure he was amused, but if he knew I didn't know the difference between a verb and an adverb, that I only had a 1.5 GPA in high school, and my test for admission revealed that I needed to spend one year in remedial high school classes before even taking college-level courses, he would have either laughed himself to death or kicked me out of his house. But he didn't. Mr. Walker really was a stickler for details. There were times when I would mispronounce a word or make some egregiously stupid remark, and he would 
glance at me over his glasses with this perturbed look on his face. I thought, gee, any minute he's going to wrap me across the knuckles with the ruler and make me write the correct answer on the blackboard a hundred times. But he made his point, and I became more prepared in the future when I came over to see him. I became an avid fan and user of the dictionary after that, and I still am. The limitations of the classroom quickly became apparent to me from the start. When reading Homer for the first time, three lectures in a week for 50 minutes doesn't quite get into my mind deep enough. Reading 15,600 lines of the Iliad just to find out who won the Trojan War makes for a long and arduous quarter. How could I learn anything from a 2,900-year-old epic when I didn't even know what an epic was? From Mr. Walker, I received lectures at night on epic poems, their structure and themes and who wrote them after which he suggested to start again with the Iliad and the Odyssey. I was grateful that he allowed me to read it in English rather than classical Greek. I needed another drink after that, and he made one for the both of us. It seems he found me as tiring and arduous as I did the epic. What did I take away from these lectures on the epic over cocktails late in the evenings at his house? Well, during an English class at Berkeley, the students were asked, who has read an epic poem before? Out of 25 students, only five of us had. When asked if anyone had read more than one, my hand was the only one that went up. My professor asked me, how many have you read? And I answered, four. Still, I only got a C in the class. It was becoming clear to me that no matter how passionate I was, I lacked the educational background, temperament, and preparation to be an academic or a lawyer. There were too many holes in my secondary education that I neglected to fill, and now it was too late. Just reading the books would be my consolation, but since there are no absolutes in literature, I found a place for me. Words defy precision and exactitude. Definition of words can be multiple, ambiguous, and malleable, leaving them open to different interpretation and understanding. Words in a sentence can blend together like colors on a canvas. There is no model to measure meaning. You can't quantify your emotions. The answers don't lie at the bottom of the column. They reside inside the laboratory of your imagination and experience. The ambiguity of words and nuances and definitions require a different approach to thinking. One needs to look at a passage from different angles and determine its meaning from the support of the text. The multiple definition of the words and the reaction of the reader are very important. If I needed more evidence of those beliefs about language, all I have to do is read Shakespeare. I was in class in the morning and reading in the early afternoons. All of it was only preparation for the classroom in the living room of Mr. Walker's house at night. Soon, I would be there almost every night. All the open books and records of poetry spread out across his floor was evidence of what we discussed. The empty glasses and ice trays and bottles gave a clue of how long we talked. This was where my education and our friendship began. Bill was not a cloistered academic. He'd served in the army as an enlisted man in Japan at the end of the war. He worked as a purser for Grace Lines. He flew for TWA to Europe, and he was a desk clerk of the Del Coronado in San Diego. He also was a truck driver in San Diego. And yet, he received both a scholarship to do a PhD on Conrad at Stanford 
and later received a writing fellowship from Stanford. One issue of Esquire magazine listed him as one of the top 50 up-and-coming writers. He is one of the few who are blessed or cursed to have art torque and jerk him into a world that resides in the realm of imagination and creativity. And so consequently, it's not easy to find other people affected so deeply. The desire to write and live in the world of art can be a lonely experience. There is risk and danger in that if it becomes your life work. Art's not a hobby. It requires sacrifices. And sometimes that sacrifice is companionship. Every so often, Bill would say the price he paid was he loved his books, but they can't put their arms around him and love him back. He was brilliant, but alone. This was his Faustian bargain. He told me many years later after he retired, he, he wondered if he did anything important. Did he do anything that made a difference in someone's life? He looked at me and said, I've asked myself many times, did my efforts make any difference to anyone? And then I thought of you. Fortunately, I still have my friendship with Mr. Walker. Our conversations are not as loud or lengthy since we quit drinking, but every once in a while we disagree and joust about literature. When he addresses me as Robert, I know he is once again reminding me who's the student. As I continue to write these stories for Our American Story, our conversations together have increased to almost every day. Is it just a coincidence that I ended up being a storyteller? At 90, he continues to astonish me about how much he reads and, more importantly, how much he loves literature. Mr. Walker was the messenger who sparked that same passion in me. I'm sure that many of you are asking, who really is Mr. Walker? I discovered the answer to that question a year after I met him. Tacked to a wall in Mr. Walker's apartment is a copy of a drawing by Gustave Doré. I bought it for him 48 years ago after seeing it hanging on a wall of a poster shop in North Beach. I could immediately see that this portrait truly captured the essence of Mr. Walker's personality and mania that are manifestations of his passion for books and life. It is a picture of Don Quixote seated alone in his library with his right arm raising his sword above as he reads from the book in his left hand. All around him are the many monsters and damsels that he encounters on his sally into the world of complete madness, fantasy, and imagination as a medieval knight. Driven to delusion after reading so many stories about love, romance, and chivalry, Don Quixote lives, interprets, and transforms the world around him from reality to fiction. His story is about the power of a man who, possessed by stories and imagination, can make himself and the world and anything he wants. The End and My goodness, what a beautiful piece of writing. And what a celebration of a lifelong mentor and friend. But in the end, more mentor. I mean, I love that he said every once in a while, when he uses that first name, Robert, I'm reminded who the teacher, who the mentor is. And that never changes. I've got a couple in my life. One's name is Anthony Dolan, Tony Dolan. And we talk quite regularly. And in the end, I learned so much from him. I've, I've been learning from him from the time I spoke to him. And always, I think I've got something to impart to him. I think sometimes I do. Uh, Tony had been the chief speechwriter to Ronald Reagan. I'd sought him out for advice. And he took me under his wing, and I don't know why. And he's a busy guy, was a busy guy, still is a busy guy but always finds the time 
And those relationships are so important in our lives. And now I've got to pen a letter myself to Tony because what an inspiring thing for us all to do to people who spend time cultivating us. It's worth doing. And thanks, Bob, for reminding any of us who've ever had a mentor to do it. And Dr. Pleasance, who was my professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University, where I went to college. And for some reason, he thought I could be a good student and that maybe I should study a little harder. And he pushed me and he prodded me. And pretty soon I got to know him and pretty soon I went into his home. And it was that same kind of library, that same kind of love of books. And that was it for me. I was off to the races reading and still am an inveterate reader. And for all the people who travel all over the world, and it's a wonderful thing to go and travel, but it's a consumeristic thing in the end. You go, you eat, you come home. But reading, it's a lifelong pursuit that takes you so far in to the human life and the human mind and the human soul. There's still no replacement for a reading life. There isn't. And so thanks to Bob McClellan, thanks to Bill Walker, And my goodness, the lives you changed, you just won't know. My dad was a lifetime teacher, a lifelong teacher, a great history teacher, a great coach. And I know the lives changed. I grew up around them. The young men particularly whose lives my dad changed. And I think often he asked himself, was it all worth it? It was. Thanks to you, Bill, and all the mentors out there. And thanks to Bob McClellan, another great McClellan Files. Bill Walker's story, Bob McClellan's story, here on Our American Stories.